Welcome to WISA Weekend. Thanks for joining us this morning. On today's program, you'll hear how some local teens are dealing with social distancing. That's coming up in Dayton Youth Radio. Today, producer Renee Wild begins a series of stories that give voice to women living and working in the rural parts of southwest Ohio. And we'll revisit a conversation we had with Gail Halderman, the man credited with designing the iconic 1965 Ford Mustang. Halderman, who grew up in Tip City, died this week after a short battle with liver cancer. First, as Ohio rolls out plans to reopen its economy, the economic fallout continues. The state is struggling to process the record number of unemployment claims filed during the pandemic And millions of Americans are still waiting for their federal stimulus checks. Like 28-year-old single mom Dejanay Koston from Dayton, who lives with her daughter on the west side. When the coronavirus shutdown took effect, she lost most of her hours at her restaurant job and quickly fell behind. After weeks of scrambling, Koston finally started a new job at a factory, but the damage is already done. Her rent is late, and her landlord's threatening to evict the family from their rented home. Koston tells WISO the situation is all the more difficult because she only recently got back on her feet after last year's tornado outbreak. And to have to go through this and lose everything all over again when I literally just built everything back up, because I lost all my clothes. My daughter lost all her clothes, my pots and pans, our TVs, our beds, everything. We lost everything. So I basically had to start all the way back over and just rebuild everything back up. So that's what I was doing, and now it's this. And it was just really sad because my daughter... Only thing she had asked for for Christmas, like, was a hoverboard. And I was able to get that for her, and we couldn't even get it out after the tornadoes. It was just devastating. I mean, I had to basically start my life all over again. And when I ended up finding this house, I was, like, really happy about it because we had been homeless since after the tornado. We were staying with, like, relatives. It was like December 27th when I moved in. My daughter, she was doing good. She um, she wanted her room to be unicorn. So we ordered some stickers off Amazon to put on the wall. We went to Walmart and got her a unicorn comforter set for her bed. She got internet for her game. And, you know, everything was just looking up and up. But, you know, I was working at Popeye's in Inglewood. I was getting paid a nice amount enough to keep me afloat as far as, like, paying bills and everything. But when the coronavirus had came about, our dining room had closed, which made a lot of our employees lose hours. My rent is six fifty a month. I pay my six fifty a month on time every month since I've been there with no issues at all. And my landlord is just trying to evict me because failure to pay rent in April, which is, you know, I I couldn't pay rent in April. So, and I tried to give him, like, even partial. He wasn't willing to accept that. He either, like, you give me the whole thing or nothing at all. My rent is six fifty. I can give you three fifty, which will be all the money that I have to survive off of until I get paid again. And he was like, no. A lot of landlords is like, cancel rent until further notice like but some landlords is just not like that 
So I'm actually trying to find me somewhere else to stay. So I'm actively looking right now. You know, people don't want you to meet up and meet up meet with them being that this coronavirus thing is going on. So everything is really like a waiting game at this point. And, you know, I still got to take care of my daughter. still got to keep a smile on my face. I can't just sit around being miserable, but I do have a lot on my plate right now. I'm tired, I'm stressed out, but, you know, I got to keep going. That was Dejeuner Coaston speaking with WISO's Jess Mador. A call seeking comment from Coaston's landlord was not answered. For more on how to find help during the coronavirus pandemic, you can visit WISO.org. This week on Dayton Youth Radio, we have a second feature in our Teens in Quarantine series. Today, we'll hear from Dylan Potts and Ashley Daniels, two juniors from Kettering Fairmont High School, talking about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting life as a teenager. The first thing I'm going to do after this corona stuff is finished with is get my hair cut because it's already been forever since I've gotten it cut. By the time this is over, my hair is going to be crazy. My name is Dylan Potts, and I'm a 17-year-old junior at Kettering Fremont High School. I live in Kettering with my mom, Allison Potts, my dad, Brian Potts, and my little 14-year-old sister, Zoe. Both of my parents work from home, so me and my sister aren't home alone. This might be the first time that I've ever really missed school. I miss being around everyone, and coming back next August is going to be a great feeling. Just recently, I just got called back into work again. I'm a drive-thru attendant at Frisch's, so I'll take your order, send it through to the cooks, bag up your food, and make your desserts. I thought this quarantine was going to give me more time with friends, and I would have a very stress-free break. But now with the stay-home order, it's one of the longest, most boring, and worst breaks ever. I normally wake up around noon, but I'm still tired, so I just go to bed again. And then after wake up at 3, I normally just stay in my bed for a few hours just scrolling on my phone, looking at social media and memes and texting my friends. I talked to my girlfriend Hannah. We just talked about how much we miss each other and how tough this is. She makes me more happy than anyone else. We haven't seen each other at all since this quarantine has started but we both know that it's for the better and we're helping people just by staying home. So for me to be separated from Hannah, as well as all my other friends, has really upset me and is damaging me severely mentally. This is probably the toughest time of my life so far. I'm definitely not as happy as I was heading into break. Uh, coronavirus messed up. Some big events for me, I guess. Prom is probably the biggest thing. I totally understand why it's canceled, though, and I would definitely not want to be in a crowded gym with hundreds of hot, sweaty teenagers dancing to music from the early 2000s while also being exposed to coronavirus. That's just too much for one night. My name is Ashley Daniels. I live in Kettering, Ohio with my mom, Alice, my dad, Dawn, and my sister. My sister's name is Taylor. She's 14 and I am 17. I was really excited, actually, when I found out that we would be doing e-learning from home. I don't really like school that much because teenagers are really hard people to go along with, as you adults may know. 
I think I'm doing so well because I'm comfortable with being alone with my thoughts. I go to Fairmont High School and I'm in the interactive media program. My dream is to be a film director and an actress. I want to be an actress to inspire and motivate people. My mindset is that someone in the world needs to see my work because maybe someone may need it to get through the day or just overcome a rough place in their life. Having access to a platform like movie making can inspire a change in someone's life. Now that I'm home all the time, I'm attempting to write a feature link script and when it becomes a movie, I'll get to tell people it was written during the great coronavirus quarantine of 2020. I'm being very cautious about the coronavirus. I wash my hands when I come home from a walk or run or before I eat anything. The thing I miss most about pre-quarantine is seeing my friends. I only have a couple. Aubrey, Alice, Rima, and Timmy. I actually went and saw Aubrey and Alice six feet away, a safe distance. We talked in a parking lot for probably two and a half hours, and it was really nice getting to talk to them. But I can't wait to hug them again. These are hard times for everyone. I encourage you to find comfort in your family or maybe a good book or your favorite film. Stay safe, stay strong, and I know we'll get through this. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was Teens in Quarantine, produced by Dylan Potts and Ashley Daniels, both students of the Interactive Media Program at Fairmont High School. Special thanks to their teacher, Laura Hutchins. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Basim Blunt. Dayton Youth Radio is created at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO. You can find more stories on the WYSO homepage at WYSO.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WYSO Weekend. County Lines takes WISO listeners into the small towns and rural communities of the Miami Valley. Our goal this year is to bring you the voices of women living and working in the rural parts of southwest Ohio. Two months ago, before the coronavirus pandemic hit Ohio, producer Renee Wild met with faculty and students at Wilmington College in Clinton County and heard their ideas about rural life and the prospects for a career in agriculture. Here's Renee with the first of six stories. At Wilmington, agriculture is the largest major for students. And surprisingly, those ag students are predominantly female. Carly Fitz, Grace Smith, and Morgan McFarland are freshman students studying agriculture at Wilmington College. They are known affectionately as Aggies around campus. All three women came from rural high schools, where their average graduating class was around 40 students. And in this interview, they talk about the culture shock of going from a small rural high school to a mid-sized college and how modern agriculture is not just some old white guy on a tractor surrounded by cows. This is Morgan McFarland talking with Grace Smith and Carly Fitz. And we're going to talk about lifestyle changes from home to college. It's honestly just a culture shock. There's not much diversity at my school. Like, literally, we had one, I want to say, mixed kid and, like, the rest were white kids. And so coming to Wilmington... It's been an enlightening experience because I get to, like, hang out with all these new people that I've never hung out with before. Like, so many different cultures are just coming together in one building. When I came here, like, the first couple of days, I kept saying, it feels like 
I met 4-H camp. I said that too. I'm so glad we're all the same age. <laughs> because you come in and like you're doing all these activities and like all these orientation activities. We're playing games. We're doing icebreakers. We're doing scavenger hunts. Running around campus. Honestly, the first thing that would go through my head every morning was that Thomas Rhett song. Like the first like week here, I was like, waking up in my college dorm room. Waking up in my college dorm. Yeah, my life it was pretty normal. Looking for a date to the spring form. I wasn't worried about nothing else. No. It's also really cool to see all the different kinds of friends that I've made living in my dorm. Uh, Grace and I actually live in the same hallway. We're on second floor picket, and it's always bopping. <laughs> and it's like me, Grace, and our other Aggie friends, and then Bree, who's my roommate, and all of her soccer friends. And it's so much fun to, like, talk to them and talk about their experiences because a lot of them didn't grow up in a rural community. So that's cool. And honestly, not having to have friends because they were your only options in high school because there was, like, 50 of us. (laughs) It's also been really interesting to see, like, some people know nothing about agriculture. Like, people can't tell the difference between sheep and goats or the difference between dairy and beef cattle. There's a guy I'm friends with, he's from Arizona, and, like, he doesn't really know anything, and he just calls us the Aggies all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It feels good to be able to, like, educate people about things that they just have never had the opportunity to learn about before. There's a certain degree of professionalism within ag that not a lot of people think about, like, coming to college within the first month, I went on the fall lobby trip. I am an agricultural communications major, and then after that trip, I added political science because having the experience of, like, going to D.C. and meeting with these politicians and, like, actually making a change was so cool. And we lobbied for the USMCA trade agreement, and then the Senate just passed it the other day, and it's, like, so gratifying to see our changes made. And I think that's just something that people don't understand. When they think of a farmer, they think of an old white guy on a tractor in the field somewhere. With cows surrounding him. With cows surrounding him as overalls. he's... Yes, in overalls. So we have that kind of image in our head and then we look at ag as it is today and we realize that there's people who dress up every day and then go to the state house or there's people that they're scientists in the lab finding new ways that we can increase our yield so that we can match this growing population being able to you know even touch the tip of the iceberg with it with these conversations that we're having with people that we're just meeting in college has been gratifying That was Wilmington College freshman Carly Fitz, Grace Smith, and Morgan McFarland. I'm Renee Wild, the producer of County Lines, WYSO's series that takes listeners into the small towns and rural communities of the Miami Valley. This story was produced at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO. County Lines is made possible by a grant from Ohio Humanities.
The designer of the iconic Ford Mustang has died. Gail Halderman of Tip City was 87. It's been reported that he had been battling liver cancer. Halderman graduated from Bethel High School in 1950. He studied design at the Dayton Art Institute before getting hired by Ford Motor Company in 1957. In this 2018 interview with WISO, Halderman talks about that history and tells the story of how his design for the iconic Mustang was selected by Ford's vice president at the time, Lee Iacocca. I actually started out studying lettering. I love to do lettering. I used to letter all the school buses at school when I was in school. But I wanted to become a lettering man. And then I saw this class that were designing televisions and bicycles, and I thought, boy, does that look exciting. It was taught by Reed V. Meister. And he had just designed a Tucker automobile. And he told us, he said, guys, everything in the world is designed, but don't overlook cars. So I went to Ford Motor Company. How'd you start there? I just took a portfolio up to Ford and showed my portfolio in 1954 and uh, was hired. And I didn't think I was good enough because the guys were doing beautiful stuff. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't compete but uh, I was chosen to go look, work on an automobile with one other person. It happened to be the 57 Ford. And so we did the 57 Ford, and that was the beginning of my career. So let's talk a little bit about the Mustang and how that came to be. Mr. Ford didn't want any part of it. We had a brilliant product planner by the name of Hal Sperlick who said there was a huge market, that we didn't have a car for it, and neither did anybody, and that we should think about putting one on the market. And Henry Ford said, no, that's what they told me when we did the Edsel. (laughs) So anyway, Hal then talked to Iacocca, and after a while, Mr. Iacocca said, I think if we had a car that Mr. Ford liked, he may change his mind. So Iacocca gave us 10 days to do a car. We worked day and night, and we designed the car, and we had to do it on a Falcon body. I did one side of the car, and my boss did the other side of the car. And I uh, I was the one who sketched the, the scoop on the side and the long hood, short deck proportion. And uh, that was favored by Iacocca. And we sh- he brought Mr. Ford over and showed him the car. And he said, Mr. Ford, this is a car I think we ought to do. And he said, I'm not approving it, but I'm not going to tell you to stop. And <laughs> that was the beginning of the Mustang. So you got the go-ahead. I went over at 3 o'clock in the morning and designed the rear end on the car. And the next day at lunchtime, we we did the front end, and that was was it. We had some super clay modelers, and uh, they knew how to help it and uh, turn out great. Can we take a look? Uh, Tell me what you have here. We have a fleet of red cars. (laughs) This is is the original hardtop, and that's a convertible, and that's the fastback. What year are these? This is, there are sixes. This is a 65, but these are two sixes, 1966. They're awfully pretty. They have to be in here. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a new one back there. Can you point out some uh, things from the original design that you're particularly proud of? The car was initially called Cougar. And we had a Cougar cat in in the front end of the grill. And someone said, we can't leave that cat out there by itself. We've got to put a corral around it. That's when we designed a box around it. And the car was going to be called Cougar. You'll see pictures of it with a Cougar cat in there. Until the 
the very last minute, Iacocca came and said, oh, by the way, the car name is now Mustang. But we couldn't draw horses. But we had a Hungarian clay modeler. And I'll show you his picture. And he said, I will do the horse for you. And it shows him here working on the horse. But we couldn't do it in clay. He said, first of all, i got to do it in wood. He carved the first horse in wood, and we chrome-plated it and put it in the grill. And I wish I had kept that, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yep, there's a picture of you. Yep, there's a picture of me. There's Lee Iacocca and Hal Spurlick I just mentioned. So how exciting was this for you? Uh, you looked like a young man there. How old were you? Probably 30. 30? Yeah. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about the, the car business back then. and I'm sure this was exciting work for you. It was very exciting, but, you know, it was just a job. And we had other cars to work on. I had uh, Galaxies. We had Falcons. We had Mavericks. We had Thunderbirds. So the Mustang was just one of, one of many at the time. So we treated it just like any other program. And uh, fortunately, it became an icon. <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> it certainly did. And, and so how does that make you feel? Very proud. Yeah. Very, very proud. Yep. You'd like for all of them to be that popular, right? <laughs> you have children? Yes, I do. Uh, daughters and grandchildren? Grandchildren. Yeah, I have nine grandchildren. Yeah. How do they feel when they find out that Grandpa designed the Mustang? They're pretty proud. Yeah. But they're so used to hearing it. I mean, you know, when you grow up with it, it doesn't mean much, you know. And so you've got four cars here, as you said, some earlier models of the Mustang and, and the later version. How do you feel about how the Mustang has evolved over the decades? I think it's done a good job. Uh, I think the, the last Mustang is a beautiful car. I wish it had a little bit more of the original, some of the cues from the original car into it. It's got too much fusion in it, in my opinion, but otherwise it's, it's a great automobile. My perception, and I could be wrong on this, um, did they stray from the original design and then started going back to it in, in re more recent years? Yes, that's true. The Fox cars, you're thinking of those? Yeah. They, they tried to make a, a different look into the Mustang. It, uh, they weren't as popular. But just so happened right after when Mr. Ford, or Mr. Ford fired Iacocca, they did that Fox car. And he looked at it and he said, at least it doesn't look like an Iacocca car. <laughs> well, I just remember a lot of uh, buzz and excitement about when they started moving back to the original design. Yeah. Well, I think that it was smart for them to come back and pick up some of the cues of the original car. Because that's what the people picture in their mind as a Mustang. And uh, I think it was a good good idea to keep keep it in the, in the new cars. You're going to be the Grand Marshal at the Concord Elegance with Dayton History this year. Is that a position you've held before? No, I've never done it before. I'll be driving this car or riding in this car. It's a real honor to be recognized. Yeah. That was our 2018 interview with Gail Halderman, the designer of the Ford Mustang. Halderman died this week at the age of 87. The Halderman Barn Museum in Tip City contains thousands of Mustang-related artifacts and even several red Mustangs dating back to the 1960s.
I'm Jerry Kenny. This is Weissa Weekend on WYSO. Thanks so much for joining us. The arts and entertainment industry has had to make quick moves to adjust to stay-at-home and shelter-in-place orders across the country. The longtime Dayton Art House Theater, The Neon, has gone to virtual screenings to keep the movies coming during this time. This week, Neon manager Jonathan McNeil spoke with Kaleidoscope's Juliet Fromholt about what the theater is doing to continue offering their services to customers safely while theaters are physically closed. I want to start off asking you a little bit about what it has been like to adapt the business of the neon, knowing that people can't come to the physical space of the theater that we're so accustomed to. Well, you know, right out of the gate, um, within within days of closing, and closing was, you know, something that we were considering even before it was mandated. Um, and then those steps were accelerated very quickly when uh, that mandate came even sooner than, than we would anticipated. But within days, distributors were... Um, coming up with alternative ways to get their films to audiences and allowing indie distributors to um, collect some portion of that box office. So some of the bigger um, theaters or some of the bigger distributors rather put out their titles on high-end VOD platforms right out of the gate as well. And, you know, some of them have been very successful, like Trolls 2 took in a whole lot of money um, recently. But even films like Emma, which we were playing from Focus, um, immediately went to VOD that next week. You know, it was $20 a download and theaters got no return from that. So they, it was immediately, you know, a, and I understand that because they had, um, you know, virtual rights were already pending that with, with somebody else, uh, some bigger company. But the smaller distributors found a way for them to allow theaters to be able to turn a bit of a profit as well from um, sharing that that with with theaters. It's by no means a replacement for us. It's still such a very small percentage of what we would be doing if we were if our doors were open. But I think that it's crucial for us to continue to engage with our customers while we're closed. So not only are our regulars able to find um, some films that they might not be able to find on other platforms, I'd say about 80, 90% of what we're offering virtually is not available at other places like iTunes or Netflix or Hulu or any of those things. But it um, is also a way for us to kind of be doing a curated series like we would be if we were open. And it keeps people thinking about the neon, which I think is really valuable while we're closed. Um, One of the things we look at is, you know, when baseball was on strike for a full season, you know, people didn't go back to baseball the way they did. So, I mean, I feel like I was leery about bringing virtual into the game because, will people get comfortable staying at home? But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think it's more important that we're maintaining a um, a relationship with our customers while we're closed. So I think that it was something, a direction we had to go. The relationship aspect of this is really interesting to me, both with the customers and with the smaller distributors. Um, I know that the Neon is very well known and respected among indie, art house, whatever term you want to use, theaters um, in the Midwest. And certainly you as, as kind of curator are very well respected. What's it like to be able to have the relationship with the distributors honored, but also to really keep that 
relationship going with your patrons that, you know, here are movies that we think are valuable for this community, you know, even if you're having to watch them at home? Well, I think that it speaks volumes to the distributors for wanting to not just put it out in the marketplace, but they know there's there's twofold. One, they want to make sure that we're open that we can reopen when the marketplace is available because it's valuable to them that we be open and we um, so keeping those relationships strong is certainly valuable. But then also they know that their films will get more exposure for us to present them to our audience. So just just taking a small film that doesn't have the half a million dollar advertising budget like some of the bigger indies have, it's valuable for us to still be giving it to our customers in a way where we are facilitating that desire that, that we think that it's a value to our customers and that um, that helps them get it into the marketplace more as well. So it's a, it's a win-win for both of us. And the best place for folks to interact with you, in addition to the website, Facebook and Instagram? That's right. Those are the two that I really keep up with the most. Um, Neon Movies is the handle on both of those. So backslash Neon Movies on Facebook and at Neon Movies for Instagram. Uh, those are the two I keep up with the most. I try to do Twitter too, but it's you know it's a one-man band uh, doing all media and marketing outreach. So, um, so those are the two that get the most updates. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Juliet. WYSO's Juliet Fromholt speaking with Jonathan McNeil, manager of the Neon Movie Theater in downtown Dayton. And just a note in remembrance of a tragic anniversary. Fifty years ago this week, four unarmed students at Kent State University were shot dead by the National Guard. It was a shocking event at the time, and it's a trauma that survivors still deal with today. So this evening, tune in to WISO for two special programs. First, up at 7 p.m., a new audio play drawn from oral histories of the Kent State shootings brought to life by actors including Ron West, Steve Byrne, and Tina Fey. Then at 8 p.m., Antioch College alum and radio producer Michael Goldfarb brings us the documentary Four Dead in Ohio. I'm Jerry Kenny. We'll be back with you next Sunday. Now, stay with us for Vic McCunis and The Book Nook.